Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The difficulty for Christians who aspire to positions of influence and power is that the top person within the framework they inhabit became the lowest person in the eyes of the world. What can a Christian aspire to if the crown of their leader's ministry is failure and defeat? What does the mother of the sons of Zebedee expect Jesus to offer her sons beyond the cross? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 20 to 23. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 343 of the Bible as Literature podcast. In his account of the history of the Roman Empire, Cyril Robinson talks about the influence of Hellenism on Roman culture and the way in which Greek philosophy and religion and what he describes as a functional individualism precipitated the decline of the Republic and the rise of tyranny, the rise of the empire. And you have an example here in the Gospel of Matthew that illustrates this point. Jesus is talking about the importance of the throne of the gospel, effectively in Matthew, which in human terms realizes the crucifixion of the one who sits on that throne, because ultimately the only power is God. No one in their right mind would want to ascend that throne. But in today's excerpt from Matthew, we have characters who are still thinking about what's in it for them, what they can get, and how they can fulfill their ambitions, demonstrating clearly that they missed the threat, the ominous burden of Jesus's statement that the Twelve would sit in judgment over the tribes of Israel. If I had to summarize Scripture in a quick phrase, it would be the problem of power. Human beings don't know how to wield it correctly. People strive for it who don't have it. People who have it grab onto it ever more tightly. They use it against the weaker. The weak are pressured by it and are abused by it. And this is the problem of power that Scripture keeps pushing. When St. John Chrysostom talks about wealth, wealth is less of a problem for him than the striving for wealth. Then he's able to hit anybody. The rich are guilty because how did they get rich? By striving for wealth. But then you also have poor people who are striving for wealth. They're no better off in St. John Chrysostom's paradigm, but only those who are not striving for wealth, but are grateful in the gifts that are given to them by God. And here we have this very paradigm playing out because Jesus 
has been talking in this passage about what it means for the first and the last, who gets what reward and who gets paid back with what and who is going to experience what. And then he even talks about himself as the son of man being the one who's going to be crucified and scourged when they go to Jerusalem. This problem of power is epitomized by this mother who wants to figure out how to squeeze as much power out of this whole situation for her children that she can. The striving for power causes this problem. The Pharisees strive for power, and that's how they misuse Torah. The young man that we had before, he was striving for power, trying to use his uprightness that he saw in himself to guarantee himself a place in the kingdom while holding on to his wealth, which was, of course, his earthly power. And then you had Peter, who had given up everything. Why did he give it up? Evidently, it was because he wanted power in the kingdom of heaven. Everyone is striving for power. Everyone is striving for power and misusing it in order to put down their neighbor to build up themselves. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. This is a damning verse on several counts. First of all, why are they coming with their mother? Because they're interested in dynasty. I know, I know. Everybody understands this scene where a mother wants to fight for her children, but that's a problem in this setting. If she's fighting for their education, if she's fighting to make sure that they do the correct thing, then she's functioning correctly as a mother. But if her interest is the glory of her family and the glory of her womb, it's a fail in scriptural terms. Some people translate the Greek word proskineo, it's a verb, as bowing and others as worship. But it doesn't matter, it's the same thing. Because bowing is the act of worship. And when they bow before Jesus asking for power, they are worshiping Caesar, not Jesus. This is very important. When Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate, he is worshiping his father. When the mother of the sons of Zebedee, with her sons, bow down to Jesus, they are worshiping Caesar because they are going to him to seek the fulfillment of a request that fulfills their worldly ambition and does not pertain to Jesus's teaching. How can it apply to Jesus's teaching? Because he just stated that he was going to be delivered to the Gentiles to be scourged and crucified. What does she think she's going to get by bowing down to someone who's being crucified? It doesn't make sense. So either she ignored that piece and just heard about the thrones, which very well could be the case because a lot of people treat Jesus this way today, that he's a magician who goes and grants wishes and great parking spots to those who believe in him. But in fact, he is the crucified one, and so many people want to deny this. I was talking to a Christian one time who said, you know, in our church, we don't have a crucifix. We have just a cross because we don't worship the crucified Jesus. We worship the resurrected Jesus. You can't skip the crucifixion because Jesus won't let you. Matthew won't let you. And here is the mother of the sons of Zebedee who want to skip that part. And about the dynasty, 
you know, the way that this is phrased, this mother has no name. She's the mother of the sons of Zebedee. The father's name is here. The mother's name is not. She is only advocating on behalf of her husband and her husband's dynasty. This is how this is functioning. You have the female voice advocating for power. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on your left. There it is. Are they the sons of Jesus? Are they his disciples? Or do they still belong to you? Do they still belong to your tribe, to your clan? Do they still belong to your family? Remember, in the Gospel of Matthew, we are taught that Jesus is rejected by his family because his teaching disassembles the hegemony of tribe and family and clan and nation. He's not welcome in his own hometown, and they are bringing their hometown to Jesus to try to ensure the place of their tribe in a position of power in what they perceive as the rise of a new Caesar. It's a big joke. This is why Matthew has to spend so much time talking about what the kingdom is, because, you know, we're already in chapter 20. I mean, most of the book is done, and even those closest to Jesus don't understand the nature of this kingdom. They think Jesus is going to be another Caesar. Even after Jesus explained his fate once he comes to Jerusalem, even after he talked about the last being first and the first being last, even after Jesus explained how those who are working the hardest are not going to be compensated more than the ones who are working the shortest. The way that she phrases it, she just says, say, in order that they might sit. The mother of the sons of Zebedee in Greek, it just sounds like she is cornering Jesus. Why is she trying to get Jesus to promise this? Because she wants to establish her line. She wants to make sure that she's established. She wants to make sure that her little boys are going to be safe. But I'm just going to tell you, I'm afraid that if your little boys are going to be hanging out with the guy who is teaching against the kingdom of this world and preaching a kingdom that is not of this world and who's going to end up crucified, things are not going to end up great for them. Not only that, the precise thing that he's been teaching is that things are not going to end up great for you in this world, so you should realize that you have to give up your desire for power in this world if you want to become a citizen of my kingdom. If you want to be a citizen of Caesar's kingdom, There's plenty of rules and regulations. You can follow those, and you'll be fine. But for mine, it's a different set of regulations, and it's one where you're taking care of the neighbor, even giving up your own strength, even giving up your own power and wealth, so that the one who is in need benefits from you. She's like an American parent who, when her sons get a C and a D in the class, goes to the school to yell at the teacher for the fact that her sons had poor grades instead of turning around and scolding her sons for their behavior and their lack of commitment to school. That's the absurdity of this situation. You care more about how you look and how your family looks and what you can get for your family than you care about what is 
just in the sight of God. In the case of the example, the education of your children. In the case of the gospel, the proclamation of the crucifixion as the throne of the coming kingdom. This is a rejection of what Jesus just preached, that the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up, without realizing it in the pursuit of her own glory and that of her children." She is stopping that teaching, which is the central teaching of the gospel, from going out to the nations. God is mocked among the Gentiles because of Christians who are interested in worldly power. And this is the blueprint for that type of apostasy right here in the gospel of Matthew. This mother betrays a misunderstanding of what Jesus is. She looks at him principally as a king who grants wishes, as opposed to a teacher that lays burdens. Why didn't she come and say, what do I have to do to earn eternal life? What do I have to do to become a member of this kingdom? Jesus, how do I follow your teaching? Jesus is trying to teach this kingdom into existence. Why doesn't she want to be a member of this kingdom? Why doesn't she want to learn? Why isn't she interested in producing the fruits of repentance that are necessary for this kingdom? Because she simply thinks of Jesus as someone who doles out presents. It's not a teaching that critiques us, that tries to keep us on the straight path. We assume we're on the straight path, and we're just going to get a cookie at the end, where Jesus was talking about how it's all about hard work, and you didn't get compensated for the amount of hard work. You sign up for hard work, and you do it, and you get what you signed up for. That's what he's saying. But this mother, she's not interested in learning. She's interested in getting. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. The irony of that statement, Richard, is that they are able. They just don't know what they're asking. They think they're telling Jesus, hey, we're ready for the big time, Jesus. We can handle it. We've been training with you. We're in shape. We understand what really counts in the teaching of Moses. And we think with all humility, Jesus, that we are ready to stand by you as you rule over the nations. That's what they think they're able to do. But what they're actually able to do is what every human being is able to do, which is die. The question is, will their death mean something? Will their death pertain to the glory of Caesar or to the glory of the Father of Jesus Christ? Now, They are able to die in a way that pertains to the Father of Jesus Christ, but that is the test of martyrdom, and of course the jury in Matthew is still out. I mean, for those of us who are less familiar with kingship, I mean, one of the great things about being king back then is one of your highest officials was your cup-bearer who brought you your drink. And one of the reasons why he was such an important figure is he would taste it to make sure that you weren't being poisoned That was the great thing is he served you drinks and it was only the best drinks because he had to taste it first. And if it was bad, you didn't have to even taste it. Jesus. Wow. 
sounds great. He's going to have someone serving him drinks and giving him massages. He's going to have a great time once he becomes king. It's going to be nice and comfy. He's going to be living large. I mean, who doesn't want that? Who's not ready for that? These guys are certainly ready for it, you know, with, as you said, Father, all humility. They're ready. They've been training. They're ready to take on this power and enjoy the heck out of this power. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. This is the knockout punch of the New Testament. Because Jesus is the top guy, and he himself subjugates his will to his father and his king. This is so important. Jesus, as the one human being who technically has the highest status in God's eyes, can't even decide who gets to sit next to him in the kingdom. He does not hold that power which completely negates and invalidates all human aspiration and ambition for glory, authority, or ascendancy of any kind. So you get to the top and you sit next to Jesus. What do you gain if he himself can't say who gets to sit next to him? The Father is the one who holds all things in the palm of his hand, and thankfully, for those living under the boot of Julius Caesar, the kingdom of the Father is not of this world. In Galatians 3 and 4, Paul talks about the inheritance and the promise. Jesus has not received the inheritance. Jesus only has a promise. In order for Jesus himself to come into this kingdom, he has to go through what he just said, and he has to confront Caesar on Caesar's terms. Only on the other side of that would he come out as the one who receives the inheritance. But he has no inheritance to give. He is simply obedient to the Father. He does not bow down to the Father to ask him for stuff. That's the difference between Jesus and these guys' mom. He bows down to his father to receive his orders in order to follow them. The cup and the baptism that he receives are going to be handed to him by Caesar and not as the inheritor of Caesar, but as the enemy of Caesar. This inauguration, this coronation that Jesus goes through as the son of the king of his father's kingdom requires quite an ordeal. For them to receive this cup and to receive this baptism, they have to go through what he said. And don't forget, guys, the lesson that he's been trying to teach Peter for quite a while now. The last will be first, and the first will be last. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.